The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Friends, for our study this morning, we're going to look at the subject of natural revelation. Now, in theology... uh, (laughs) <laughs> okay, my light wasn't on, but I they had plenty of time to put it on, so I assumed they were it was okay, but it wasn't okay. So, <clears throat> all right, good morning, Bereans. <laughs> For our study this morning, we're going to look at the subject of natural revelation in theology. What's something that's called general revelation or natural revelation refers to the knowledge about God and spiritual matters that is discovered by natural means, such as observation of nature, philosophy, reasoning. Christians, the, Christian theologians use the term to describe knowledge of God purported to be plainly available to all mankind. Now, in support of this view, three texts are prominent. Psalm 19, 1-6, Romans 1, 19-21, and Romans 2, verse 14. And we're going to look at all three of those texts this morning and see if they, in fact, do teach a natural revelation. Let's start with Romans 1, 19-21. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Now, it talks about his invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature, and the fact that these things about God can be clearly perceived or understand or seen in the things that have been made. Now, let me ask you something, and I ask you to think, as always, can man come to know God through nature? As man looks at creation... He looks at the earth, he looks at the heavens. Does he realize that there is a God and therefore become without excuse before him? This is what these verses are purported to teach, and that's a common interpretation of them. Tertullian, the early church father, said this, It was not the pen of Moses that initiated the knowledge of the Creator. The vast majority of mankind, though they have never heard the name of Moses, to say nothing of his book, know the God of Moses nonetheless. Nature is the teacher, the soul is the pupil. What do you think of that? They don't even need Moses, they don't need Moses' book, they just need to go out and look at the rocks and, oh, I know God. Good, some of you are shaking your head, no, I'm glad to hear that. Do men come to know God through looking at nature? And what about the scientists who study various aspects of Yahweh's creation? When they see the complexity, when they see the awesomeness of God's creation, do they fall down and worship Yahweh? 
Well, they do if they're Christians. Because I'll tell you, as a believer, I love to be out in the woods. I mean, I just feel I'm closer to God. You get away from the buildings and mankind and the city, you get out in the woods, or if I'm out on the water, I'm just worshiping the Lord who created these things that I'm enjoying. But that's for Christians. If they're not Christians, what they seem to worship is the Big Bang Theory. The late author and astronomer Carl Sagan said, the universe is all that ever was and ever will be. As an astronomer who studied the heavens, he didn't see the glory of God. He didn't see God at all. Now, Julian Huxley, who was the English evolutionary biologist, said, it is all an accident, all a matter of chance, no reason, no end, no purpose at all. These men didn't just view, they studied God's creation. And they never saw Him or His glory. Natural man says that the matter of which the universe is made of somehow over billions of years organized itself into what we see without any outside assistance or intelligence. It just all happened. It just, you know, exploded and all this stuff fell into place. What is called natural or general revelation will not bring anybody to God. Now, let me just say here that my position is different than many theologians. They just believe in this natural theology, general revelation. I don't. And I don't... uh, Let me ask you this. Let's go a step further. Will special revelation bring people to God? Again, I would say no. And think with me along this line. If special revelation could bring people to God, if hearing the Word of God could bring people to God then we should go out and grab our friends, our loved ones who don't know God, bring them in here, tie them to the chair, and preach to them until they get saved. They won't, they won't arrest us for kidnapping because once they become Christians, they'll realize we did it out of a love for them, right? And so everything will be good. If that would work, believe me, I'd be involved in that. Snatching people off the street, bring them in, turn those speakers up and preach the Word of God until they become Christians. But that won't work, people. Now, if you know your Bible, you may be thinking, well, doesn't 1 Peter say that we're saved by the Word of God? Well, let's look at that verse. 1 Peter 1.23 Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding Word of God. Now, what I want you to understand here is those two propositions, of and through, are different. The preposition of indicates the source. We are born of God, and through indicates the instrumentality. In other words, the Holy Spirit gives us life so we can receive the Word of God. Regeneration is a direct act of God upon the spirit of man. It is a spiritual resurrection. And the only way man comes to know God is if God brings him to himself. John 6, 44. No one can come to me. Okay, that's a universal statement. Nobody. Nobody comes to Christ. And there's an exception. Unless, what is it unless? Unless the Father who sent me draws him. We've gone over this verse enough that I hope you understand. I hope you know it. The word draw there is the Greek word helkuo. It means to drag by irresistible superiority. That doesn't sound very Arminian, but that's what the Bible says, okay? 
So no one can come to Christ unless the Father who sent Him drags them to Himself. And I will raise Him up at the last day. 1 Corinthians 2.14 The natural person, that's sukakos, it means the man without the Spirit, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. Have you ever seen this fleshed out? You ever tried to share the gospel with somebody and they're like, what are you talking about? That's nonsense. That's crazy. It's because the natural person doesn't get it. Watch. For they are folly to him. He's not able to understand them. He doesn't have the ability because they're spiritually discerned. So the man without the Spirit, he can't appreciate God's glory through the heavens or through special revelation. God must first effectually call a man. Then man can see the glory of God in creation and in the Word of God. How much do dead men see the glory of God? They do not. 1 Corinthians 1.21 says, For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we, pre- what we preached to save those who believe. So the world, he said, did not know God through wisdom. This verse destroys the, every variety of natural revelation or natural theology. They didn't know God through wisdom. The knowledge of God comes only through propositional revelation once God opens a heart. Thomas Aquinas taught that Romans 1 was endorsing Aristotle's pagan theology of knowledge called empiricism. But Romans 1 doesn't teach any such thing. It doesn't teach that men learn truth about God or anything else from sensation. Francis Schaeffer, he warned the church about Thomas Aquinas. And he warned the church about what he called Aquinas' teaching of nature eating up grace. And by this, he meant that if you give natural revelation an epistemological inch, it'll displace Scripture. In other words, why do we need Scripture if we can just go out in the woods and there's God, or look at the heavens and there's God? We don't need the Bible. We can just learn about Him through nature. Can natural man using natural means derive truth from nature? No, they cannot. So what are these verses in Romans talking about? Well, let's look at them. Verse 18, first of all, says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Now, notice that Paul says this, wrath, this wrath is revealed from heaven. Well, to understand this, you need to see the parallelism in the language and structure between verse 17 and 18. Is in verse 17, he says that God's righteousness is revealed in the gospel. So in verse 18, we see that God's wrath is also being revealed in the gospel. Paul's gospel reveals God's covenant faithfulness, which involves the announcement that God will judge the covenant breakers and that the agent of this divine judgment is Yeshua. In verse 19, he says, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For here, this is the reason for the wrath of God in verse 18. He says it can be known. This is the Greek word ganastos, which means well-known. It's well-known. The things about God can be well-known. He says God has shown it to them. The word shown here is phanerao, and it means to make visible, to make known. So God has shown it to them, who is the them? Who's he talking about here? There's a lot of 
um, argument about that. Well, who did God make Himself visible or known to? In verse 17, Paul says, you, referring to the first century Roman Christians. And then in verse 19, he says, them. And then in verse 20, he says, they. So who did God make Himself visible or known to? Well, verse 20 says, For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. In the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Now, is it possible that Paul is not talking about the physical creation in this verse? A lot of people try to make it physical creation. You look up, you see the stars, you see this, and you just, okay, I get it, there's a God. Well, the Greek word used here for creation is katesis, which is at times used for the physical creation. Okay, you take your concordance, and you see this as katesis, then you search through the New Testament, because it's Greek, and you find out where else is this used, and how else is this used. And you find out sometimes it's used for creation, but it's also used for, to refer to mankind. So it's possible that the word katesis doesn't always mean physical creation. It's sometimes used just for men. But is it here? Well, literally, verse 20 reads, For the invisibles of him from the creation of the world, the maid has clearly understand being discerned. And the word maid here is poyoma, which means a product, a thing that is made, a workmanship. This word is only used one other place, and it's used in Ephesians 2.10, for we are His workmanship. Alright? Poyoma. We, we as believers are a direct creation of Yahweh. But listen, throw, throw you a curveball here. We're a direct creation of Yahweh, but so is the Zodiac. Now you're saying, what in the world does the Zodiac have to do with anything? Okay? Well, I believe that the constellations of the Zodiac are clearly perceived and therefore the things that have been made. That's what he's talking about, I think, in this verse here. See, the Zodiac are signs that point to Messiah and His death on the cross. And you might be thinking, well, how has God made His eternal power, His divine nature clearly seen in the Zodiac? I think God has written the Gospel in the stars, through the zodiac. Well, let's don't lose me yet. Let me give me a chance to explain this. Okay, don't check out yet. Let's look at Psalms 19, which is another passage used to teach natural revelation. Psalm 19, one through six says, "The heavens declare the glory of God; the sky above proclaims His handiwork." And see, people say, "Yeah, you look at the heaven, you know that's God, right?" Day to day pours out speech, night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor is there words, whose voice is not heard. Their voice has gone out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom, leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden. From its heat. Now, the question here is David saying that we can see the hand of God in the physical creation? That's how most people would interpret this. In other words, we stand at the Grand Canyon and we are awed by what we see. 
Or we stand on the beach at the Atlantic or the Pacific Ocean and we're awed by this great vast body of water and what God has done. Or we stand at the Alps and we look at one of these magnificent peaks and we're just awed. And because of that, we know there's a God. I don't think that's what this is saying. He says, the sky above proclaims His handiwork. The Hebrew word for sky here is rakia. In Genesis 1.1, we see that the stars are in the rakia. Genesis 1.14, And God said, Let there be lights in the rakia of the heavens, and separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs, for seasons, for days, and for years. All right. Expanse here is rakia. That's the same word translated sky in Psalm 19. Rakia, the word means a beaten out metal. Uh, see, the, the ancient Hebrew cosmology is the earth is flat and it's got a dome over it. And this dome that's over the earth is called the rakia. And God said the stars are placed in this dome, in the rakia. So I think that David is referring, what he's referring to in Psalm 19.1 is the zodiac. The zodiac means path or way. The zodiac is the stages of the sun's path through the heavens in 12 months. Notice verse 3 here. He says, there is no speech and there are no words whose voice is not heard. Does that make sense? (laughs) You want to see it make less sense? Look at verse 2 first. Day to day pours out speech, night to night reveals knowledge. So day is pouring out this speech, night is pouring out this speech. There is no speech. Okay, which is it? Is there speech or is there no speech? Well, the King James puts it this way. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. It makes a whole lot more sense when you understand it that way. The Geneva Bible says this. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. What voice is not heard? The zodiacs. There's no place where the zodiac is not speaking to the people. Okay? So, and then the the Geneva Bible has this note. It says, The heavens are a schoolmaster to all nations, no matter how barbarous. And I think Psalms 19 is referring to what some have called the gospel in the stars. In other words, God's glory is seen in the zodiac because the zodiac tells the plan of redemption. Hang on, don't give up, okay? So what is it that utters or pours forth speech? Which voice goes out to the whole world? Whatever it is, it is showing the glory of God. Now, is the glory of God seen in the existence of stars alone? No. The scientists say those are all the result of the Big Bang. But 2 Corinthians 4, six says, For God, who said, Let the light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Yeshua. It is the work of Christ that shows the glory of God more than anything else. Would you agree with me on that? So the glory of God is not just stars, but it's the work of Christ in redemption. And if the heavens declare the glory of God, then they're saying something about Christ. In other words, there's something in the heavens, there's something in these lights and these stars which declares Christ. We find in Genesis that Abram, he has no children, but God promised him many offspring. 
Genesis 13, 16. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. So here Yahweh is promising Abram multiple descendants. If we go over to Genesis 15, we see another incident, the same thing, Genesis 15, 1 through 6. He says, After these things, the word of Yahweh came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram says, O Lord Yahweh, will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of Yahweh came to him, This man shall not be your heir, your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and he said, so he takes Abraham outside, look at the sky. This is not our sky. Okay, go out in the wilderness away from any lights, away from anything, and, and look at the, star, the, star, the sky at night. It is absolutely amazing. So he takes him outside and he says, look toward the heaven. And number the stars, if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed Yahweh, and he counted to him his righteousness. Now, in verse 5, Yahweh tells Abraham to number the stars. The word number here is from the Hebrew word safar. And safar can mean to recount that is, to celebrate, to show forth, to speak, to talk, to tell. It comes from a root meaning a book or a scroll. Now, in the Septuagint, the word number is arithmio, which means to reckon up. Arithmio is a much wider than number and basically means enumerate or reckon. So, I think what Yahweh says to Abraham was not number the stars. Go ahead and see if you can count them, Abraham. That's not what he's saying. He's telling to him to recount or to tell the stars. In other words, there was a story up there in those stars, and Yahweh wanted Abraham to take note of it. There was something about this story in the stars that Abraham believed. It says, he believed Yahweh, and he counted him for righteousness. Now, we have to ask, what did Abraham believe? Okay, so God says, Abraham, you're going to have a whole bunch of people. So Abraham believed that, and all of a sudden he's counted, he's counted righteous for believing he's going to have a bunch of kids? Does that make sense? Or was it the message of redemption that he saw in those constellations? Paul tells us that Abraham had the gospel preached to him. Okay? He says that in Galatians 3.8. And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, And you shall all nations be blessed. So, was the gospel in those stars? Whatever Abraham believed, it caused him to be counted as righteous. And it's hard for me to think that Abraham just believed, I have a bunch of kids, so yeah, that makes me righteous. No. Yahweh evidently showed Abraham that one of his descendants would redeem man from the curse and satisfy the justice of God. So Abraham believed that God would provide a redeemer to deal with man's sin. When Yahweh told Abraham in Genesis 5.5, so shall your offspring be, he was saying that Messiah would be Abraham's offspring. 
Was that what Abraham was to recount in the stars? I think Paul explains this to us in Galatians 3.16. He says, Now the promise was made to Abraham and to his offspring. It doesn't say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but to referring to one, and to your offspring, which is Christ. So the promise is made to Abraham and his offspring, and that offspring is Christ. The promise, the Abrahamic covenant is given to Abraham and Christ. So Paul is clarifying that Yahweh told Abraham that his offspring was being referred to here, and it's in the singular, not the Hebrew, plural, which would translate seeds. So I think it's possible that Abraham thought that his seed, his descendant Isaac, was to be the promised Messiah. I mean, it would be logical for him to think that. You're going to have a child, you're descendant, you know. So now remember, Abraham had received a very specific promise that he would have a son at a particular time. That's Genesis 17, 15 through 16, and 18, 10. And then, so God promises you're going to have a son. And he's thinking, oh, this son is the Redeemer, right? And then in Genesis 22, we read Yahweh's command to Abraham to do what? Sacrifice that son. What does Abraham do when Yahweh says, sacrifice your son? He didn't argue with God, did he? Nothing in the text about, I believe, oh, a God, wait a second, wait a second, let me get this. This is the promised son, the one you promised me, the one that redemption is, I'm supposed to kill him? God, wait a second, is this you? I need a sign. Abraham didn't argue, he didn't question, he simply obeyed. So did Abraham know the Messiah had to be sacrificed and then would be resurrected? So if he thinks, okay, Messiah has to die, then go sacrifice your son. Okay, yeah, this is part of the plan. He's got to die so he can be resurrected. I think he might have believed his son was the sacrifice. Look at Hebrews 11, 17-19. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promise was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. So Abraham believes that Yahweh would raise the Messiah, and perhaps he believed that Isaac was that seed, was that Messiah, And Abraham said to the young man, watch this in Genesis, he's going to kill his son. Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. So he's thinking, I'm going to go sacrifice him, but he says, we're going to come back. How's that work out? It doesn't unless he thinks God's going to resurrect him. So Abraham seemed to believe that they were both coming back. He may have believed that Isaac was the Messiah, who would be resurrected. He seems to have known the gospel, is my point here. And I think he saw it in the stars. If the gospel was told in the constellations, how were men supposed to know the meaning of those constellations? Have you ever been to the planetarium or one of those places and they show you, they point out the constellations to you and you're like, oh, that's quite an imagination, you know? I'm like, really? You see that there? I don't quite see. I mean, I can see the Big Dipper, the Little Dipper. You get beyond that, and I'm like, nah, I think you got an imagination there. Well, understanding these constellations was just like reading. You had to be taught. 
If you never learned to read and someone gave you a book and said, here, read this, you're like, well, I don't know any of that. You, you had to be taught how to read. So I don't think you can just look up in the sky and say, oh, look, there's a lion. Oh, look, you know, I see the plan of redemption. No, I don't think you can do that. It has to be taught. Like reading a book, it's something that you have to learn. Now, here's what we have to understand. The constellations themselves have been known from antiquity. The names of the stars have retained their meaning in various languages. Pick a language. They're all the same. For instance, the constellation Virgo means virgin. It's referred to as Bethula in Hebrew, Parthenos in Greek, Kenya in Hindi, and they all mean virgin. So pick somebody, they'll look up and they might have a different name, but it's the same meaning. This indicates a prior knowledge of the names of the stars and constellation prior to the language confusion at Babel. Remember, before Babel, everybody speaks the same language, they're all on the same page, they all understand this. This knowledge may well have come down from Noah or even from Adam. The star and con- remember how long they lived, okay? They had a long time to teach people, okay? The star and the constellation names have been handed down from antiquity. And the book of Enoch, that Jeff talked about at the conference, states that the angel revealed the constellations to Enoch. So the book says the way Enoch learned this, the angels who came down taught them to him. And he says, Baraquijal taught astrology and Cocobel the constellations. So these angels, these gods are coming from heaven and they're teaching men. Which makes sense because the knowledge of those constellations would have to be special revelation. Because those pictures are just not there for anybody to see without a lot of instruction. All right, with that in mind, back to Romans. He says, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived. How have His eternal power and divine nature been seen? Well, I think they've been seen in the zodiac. It's like the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. The vault of the heavens declares the glory of Yeshua the Christ. The creator of the universe to the glory of God. The gospel is written in those stars. Romans 1, 21 and 22 says, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise, they became fools. They knew God. Who is he talking about here? Who is the they who knew God? Who were the first people to know God? Well, Adam and Eve. Right? They dwelt in Eden, the temple of Yahweh. But because of their sin, they're put out of Eden. And even though man is removed from the garden and the temple, Yahweh still is communicating with man. I'll, let me share you with you three very important verses. Genesis 5.22, Enoch walked with God. After he fathered Methuselah 300 years, and he had other sons and daughters. 5.24, Enoch walked with God and was not, for God took him. Genesis 6.9, these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Walking with God, this is a very significant phrase. This phrase only occurs three times in the Bible They're all right there. None of them in the New Testament. When God walks with men is a rare thing. The first occasion of this is in Genesis 3 where the Lord was walking in the garden with Adam and Eve. He was communicating with them. They were communing with God in this garden temple. 
And walking with God depicts a direct divine encounter, a direct divine relationship. Sometimes we think, or at least I know I used to think, that people after Adam and Eve, they were ignorant of Yahweh. God kicked them out of the garden. That was the end of it. They had no relations. They didn't know anything until God started dealing with Israel. But these men walked with Yahweh. They knew Him. So I think that understanding Israel's worldview really helps us understand what Romans 1 is talking about. In the creation account, so let's, let me just recount for you, and hopefully you know this by now, but let me recount for you Israel's worldview, the divine counsel viewpoint. We see in Genesis 1.27, God created man in his own image, and the image of God he created him, male and female, he created them. So this tells us we're created, and it's in the image is better translated as the image of God is a better translation. And this means that we are divine representatives. We represent Yahweh. We're to do what He wants us to do as if He were physically, physically present with us. So Yahweh creates Adam, and according to Job, Adam had access to the divine counsel. Now this makes sense because he's in the garden, and that's where the divine counsel is with Yahweh. But Job 15, 7 and 8 says, Are you the first man who was born? Who was that? That's Adam. All right. Or were you brought forth before the hills? Have you listened to the counsel of God? So the first man, Adam, was in Eden with the counsel of Yahweh. Adam was in an intimate relationship with Yahweh. They walked in the garden. They had fellowship together. They dwelt in His presence. Eden is where Yahweh lived and issued His decrees. He was with His heavenly host who existed before humanity. This is the divine council, the family of God. And Adam was there with them. Adam, God created Adam outside the garden, and then the Bible says He brought him into the garden where the divine council was. Well, my understanding of this, these gods said, who is this man that he should be part of our family? They didn't like it. They didn't want any part of this. And so what they did is they said, let's tempt him to disobey God so he'll get kicked out. And so I don't think it was a snake. I think it was a divine being. Tempts Eve. They sin. God kicks him out. And the divine council says, yes, we got rid of him. Okay? He sinned. And because of their sin, they're put out. But God didn't end it there. We have a promise of Yahweh in Genesis 3.15, the proto-evangelum, the first gospel thing. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So Eve's seed, a human being, will come and fix what happened to Adam. In other words, they'll repair the damage between man and God. A deliverer will come. Well, I believe that in an attempt to stop the seed of the woman, because the divine council understood this, these fallen gods understood this, a group of the watchers left heaven, cohabitated with women in an attempt to corrupt the seed of the woman. They're intermingling, they're intermarrying, and now the divine seed is corrupted. Human seed is corrupted. This is a half, this is a hybrid, half man, half God. Okay? This is Genesis 6. This is not fairy tales. This is what the Bible talks about, okay? The watchers got kicked out of the garden temple, and now they're trying to keep the Redeemer from bringing them back, all right? The watchers didn't get kicked. The watchers got man kicked out, and now God's trying to bring them back. So they're trying to stop it. 
So let's corrupt the seed. Then the Redeemer can't come. He can't fix what's broken here, and we'll be okay. Well, Earth's population begins to grow, and it just becomes wicked as a result of the divine rebellion of Genesis 3 and Genesis 6. And man begins to worship the Watchers instead of the Watchers' Creator. This rebellion of man culminates into building a ziggurat at Babel. Genesis 11, 8 and 9 says, So Yahweh dispersed them from there all over the face of the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore its name is called Babel, because there Yahweh confused the language of all the earth, and from there Yahweh dispersed them over the face of the earth. So up to this point, they're all speaking the same language, they're working together, and they're building this ziggurat trying to get to God, all right? We're going to create this and we can have communion with God on our own. God kicked us out, but we'll fix it. So the world's in a state of chaos, and they're in rebellion against God, and so they're judged. They won't follow Him, so He disperses them, and He turns over. He turns all these nations over to lesser deities. This is a very significant text, and we learn more about it in Deuteronomy 32, 8 and 9. that says, When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance. This is going back to Genesis 10. When He divided mankind... Watch what it says. He fixed the borders of the people according to the number of the sons of God. So these, these watchers, he takes these nations and he puts watchers over them. Genesis 10 is the table of nations. If you read that, you see that the nations are listed there. And Yahweh divides these descendants of Noah. There were 70 different nations. This is recorded in Genesis 10.32. And this is the backdrop for Moses' statement in Deuteronomy 32.8. That Yahweh is responsible for the creation and placement of the nations, the goyim. In fact, variations of the same Hebrew root word, parad, which means to separate, are used in Genesis 10.32 and Deuteronomy 32.8, giving us a conceptual connection there. Now, the idea that the separation of mankind into 70 nations at the Tower of Babel was by and for the angelic sons of God is supported in the book of Jasser. Jasser says they built the tower and the city, and they did this thing daily until many days and years were elapsed. And God said to the 70 angels who stood foremost before him, to those who were near to him, saying, Come, let us descend and confuse their tongues, that one man shall not understand the language of his neighbor, and they did so unto them. Now, if Deuteronomy 32, if in Deuteronomy 32, Moses was indeed referencing Yahweh's separation of the nations according to Noah's offspring, specifically their physical separation at the Tower of Babel, it's important to note that Israel is not listed in those 70 nations because Israel did not exist at the time. All right? There is no Israel. It's just these 70 nations and God is sick of them. So what happens at Babel is man's disobedience reaches its peak. I mean, God's just said, I had enough of this, okay? They're worshiping these lesser gods, and so Yahweh is just done with them. He conti- they continue to reject, reject Yahweh. They continue to serve other gods. So Yahweh gives them up, and we'll see that in our text in Romans. I think that's what Romans 1 is referring to. God gave them up. He's like, I'm done. You won't listen to me. You won't follow me. And then we know what happens in chapter 12. God says, I'm going to start over. I'm going to try a different nation. I'm going to create a nation, and I'm going to reveal myself to them. Now, Yahweh said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house. 
Abraham is part of these nations that God gave up, but he calls him out to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. I will bless you, and your name will be great so that you will be a blessing. So Yahweh calls Abram, and he starts all over with the nation Israel as his people. He starts a new family. He's turned over these other nations to the lesser gods, who in fact work for him. They're under his control, and someday he's going to call these nations back. In the very next verse in Genesis, he says, you're going to be a blessing to all people. So in other words, he's going to use Abraham to get these nations back that he just dispersed. So at the Tower of Babel, Yahweh's done with the nations. They want to follow and serve the watchers above Yahweh. So he just turns them over. He gives them up. And in chapter 12, he calls Abraham. He starts all over with Israel. Now, as we come to the New Testament, we see in the book of Acts at Pentecost, all these nations that are coming in and they're at Pentecost that are all named. And God is beginning to reclaim these nations he just dispersed. In other words, he had not forever abandoned the nations to the watchers. He always had a plan to call them back. Israel is supposed to be a light to the Gentiles. They messed up. They never were what they were supposed to be. But God had always had plans. Now, all right, back to Romans. Romans 1.23. And exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds and animals, and creeping things. The darkness and ignorance of unbelieving men resulted in them creating their own gods. And the reference to their exchanging the glory of God for images could go back to a time prior to Genesis 11. 24 says, therefore God gave them up. And I think this is talking about Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel, Yahweh giving the nations over to the 70 watchers. He's done with them. He gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to dishonoring their bodies among themselves. So he just says, I'm done with you. He turns them over, verse 25, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. They serve in these fallen gods instead of God. So again, I see this referring to Genesis 11. But this is something that we could say is really true about all men in all ages, okay? Adam did this. So did the descendants. His descendants did the same thing. Israel did the same thing, didn't they? People who knew God, they walked away from Him. I mean, if you're reading through the Tanakh and you're picking up, you're going through Samuel or whatever, any of the books, Judges, and you're like, what is wrong with these people? I mean, they come through the Exodus. All these plagues, judging all the gods of Israel. They walk through the, dry, the Red Sea on dry land. They get over and they start yelling at Moses. Why would you bring us out here? Me? I didn't do any of that stuff. And they just turn from God continually. It's just man. And this teaches us, I think, that without Yeshua as our Savior, none of us will ever live up to what Yahweh calls us to be. Amen. It's only in Christ that we'll ever be what God wants us to be. Because we all tend to worship and serve the creature. And thank God for a Savior who saves completely. Okay? So let's go to chapter 2. That's Romans 1, that's Psalm 19. Neither one of them, I think, talking about natural revelation. Well, let's go to a couple of verses that are also used to prove uh, natural revelation in Romans 2. Romans 2, 14. For when the Gentiles who do not have the law, by nature, do what the law requires, they're a law to themselves even though they don't have the law. All right? So here it's saying that Gentiles 
who do not have the law, by nature, do what the law requires. In other words, they're just, these Gentiles are out there, they're just, they don't have any law, but they just know what to do. It's just in them. So, so by nature, they're just doing the right thing. The misinterpretation of this verse has led to a great misunderstanding, I think. Because many see this verse as saying that God has written on every heart of man a basic moral code. In other words, all men know. And the code is similar to the things contained in the Ten Commandments. The universal moral code contains things like don't steal. So you know not to steal, right? Don't cheat. Tell the truth. There's this moral code, they say, written on the heart. And yet somehow little kids... Learn to lie so quickly. And you wonder, where did they learn that? Did they go to school? Did they, you know, they got some evil teaching teachers comes at night and teaches these kids to do these wrong things? Well, they're saying, well, no, it's just written on your heart. You know you shouldn't do that. Keep your word. Help the poor. Don't kill and so on. John Piper, who goes along with this, says this. All human beings have the moral law of God stamped on their hearts. Paul is teaching something enormously important here about human nature. The instinctively is literally by nature. In other words, Paul is telling us something fundamental here about human nature. And then trying to reinforce his point, Piper says, we have seen this teaching before. And he goes back to Romans 1.21. They knew God. They did. Every human soul as it comes to consciousness, knows that it is created by God and dependent upon God and should honor and thank God. Another commentator says this, He has written his moral standards into the human DNA so that even remote tribal groups understand something of God's law. Is that true? Do men all know God's law? I sure don't see this in men. From what I understand, this verse in Romans is the proof for this teaching. Well, just man knows it, all right? By nature, he does what the law requires. And many take this verse to mean that Gentiles, by nature, they just do what the law requires. They just know. It's innate. They take it to mean there's something inside the heart of man which compels him to keep the moral standards of God laid down in the Ten Commandments. Just Everybody knows this. Well, here's the problem, people. The key to understanding this verse is translation. Okay? All the major translations have missed it here. And this mistake has led to a faulty view of the innate knowledge of God. N.T. Wright says this, The phrase, by nature, goes with the possession of the law, not with the doing of the law. Okay, that is super important, and I think he nails it here, okay? Let's take the comma out of here, okay? Because their Greek language doesn't have commas, okay? So let's just get rid of that. And what he is saying here, Gentiles who do not have the law by nature. In other words, if you're a Jew, you have the law, right? The Torah is given to you from birth. Do Gentiles have a law? No, they don't have the Torah. So the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature, they don't have it. They don't have the law. But they do what the law requires. So it's not by nature they do what the law requires. It's the law. As N.T. Wright says, the phrase by nature goes with the possession of the law, not the doing. 
So he's making a distinction here between Jews who are born with Torah and Gentiles who by nature, by birth, don't have the law. And here's the problem. These Gentiles are doing what the law requires, but they don't have it. Now, the New American Standard instinctively and the King James and the ESVs by nature are from the Greek word phusis. And Paul uses this word to refer to the possession of the law. And I think that's clear from looking at it, uh, the use of phusis in Romans 2.27. Then he who is physically uncircumcised, and you can translate those, you can swap those two, physically or by nature. They're both the Greek word phusis. So he who is by nature uncircumcised, who's that? Who is by nature uncircumcised? Everybody! By nature, Right? Everybody by nature is circumcised. So it doesn't mean much, all right? He who is by nature uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision and break the law. Okay? This is almost identical to the point he makes in verse 14. Here the physically uncircumcised who keep Torah refers to Gentiles. This cannot refer to people who are naturally or innately uncircumcised because that's everybody. But to those who don't physically have law, and in verse 14 we could translate it to those who do not physically have the law, do the things of the law. Now let me ask you something, people. This is the key here. Who are these Gentile law keepers? How do Gentiles who do not have the law, how are they doing what the law requires? They're Christians. They're Christians. And we could translate this for when Gentiles who by nature do not have the law do what the law requires, these not having the law are a law to themselves. They don't have the law, but they do the things of the law. You say, how's that possible? They're Christians. And they have trusted Christ and the requirement of the law is fulfilled in them. It's fulfilled in them. Look at the next verse, verse 15. They show the work of the law written on their hearts. Right? While their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. The work of the law is written on their hearts. In other words, the requirement of the law is fulfilled in them because it's been written on them. And where do we find the promise of the law being written on the hearts? Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. This is a new covenant. And Paul uses the same idea in Romans 8. He says this in Romans 8. Watch, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. In other words, whatever God requires in the law is fulfilled in us, in Christians. And then he says, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And that phrase, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit, is not a qualifying phrase. It's a descriptive phrase. A Christian is one who does not walk after the flesh, but after the Spirit. And all Christians have the requirements of the law fulfilled in them by union with Christ. So these Gentiles who didn't have the law, they're doing what it requires because they've trusted Christ and now the law is fulfilled in them. So a correct translation of Romans 2.14 tells us that this verse has nothing to do with general revelation. And it's a problem of a comma. Again, when you try to, you know, 
take those commas out and try to figure it out without it because translators put that in where they thought, oh, this, is, this will be good here. And it's just their interpretation, okay? And like I said, almost all translations, they translate it that way. And it makes it sound like they're just naturally doing what the law requires. And then you get a whole area of theology that's whacked out because its starting premise is wrong, okay? This verse has nothing to do None of these verses have anything to do with general revelation. The only way anybody knows anything about Yahweh is if He gives them life and plants His Word in their heart. Salvation is a work of God, people, from beginning to end. Natural man cannot understand the things of the Spirit of God. He never will. It's not till God changes his heart takes out the stony heart, as Jeremiah says, puts in a heart of flesh that man can then understand the Word of God and understand who God is. So these people wandering around out there looking at creation are not going to figure things out and say, oh, I, I get it, there's a God, He's a Redeemer, He done all... No. But I think God did write this in the stars for the early people to understand. And like I said, Abraham seems to have understood it clearly by the things he did. And he was declared righteous by believing it. So I think it's more than just he's going to have a bunch of descendants, Abraham. No, there's a Redeemer coming. And Abraham believed God, and it was accredited to him for righteousness. Let's pray. Father, I thank you this morning for the opportunity to look at your word. Father, we see from that verse in Romans 2.14 that it's so easy to get things wrong just by a simple comma. Give us a heart, Lord, that desires to know the truth, to dig in the truth, to find out what your word says. Give us an open mind, Lord. And I pray, Father, that this morning that people would not believe what I said, not reject what I said, but look into this and see if it in fact is so. Thank you, Lord, for your grace to us, your patience with us. Amen. Okay, questions, comments? Nobody? <laughs> I see the hand. Hands all over the auditorium. <laughs> so, uh, so Romans two fourteen. So when Gentiles, would that be better or better understood that so when Christians who do not have a law? Well, it's Gentile Christians he's specifically speaking of, and that's why Gentiles need to be there. Okay, it's Gentile believers. I mean, the Jews had the law. They they had it by nature. It was given to them. It was they're born into that. But the Gentiles did not, and that's his whole thing here. Here you got these people who never had Torah, and they're obeying it. How's that happen? They're living it out. Well, because they trusted Christ, and the law is fulfilled in them. Christ fulfilled the law, people. The only one that ever did fulfill the law, and in him, we fulfill the law. He's our representative. We get what he did. It's amazing, okay? None of us in ourselves would ever do that. And when that rich young ruler comes to Yeshua and Yeshua says, oh, you need to do this, you know, honor your father and mother and keep the commandments. You know what the commandments are. He says, how do I have eternal life? And he says, you know the commandments. And what did he say? All these have I kept from my youth up. Liar! <laughs> Liar! Nobody's ever done that. Men are corrupt, but he thought he was righteous. He didn't need a Savior. So the Lord said, okay, enough. I'm not going any further. You don't pour water down a clogged drain, okay? He's not getting it. There's no point in wasting your time there, all right? Go ahead. So Abraham, he had the, he had the relationship with him, and the, 
the confidence to, no matter what God had instructed him or told him, he was in all in anyway. He was all in, he, but he had some kind of special understanding. Like I said, he knew something about the gospel. You just see in that story, it's just so cool. You know, God says, go, go kill your son. Okay. Well, wait a minute. We're going to come back, he says. Well, why? How did he think they were coming back? You know, and then he gets up there and God stops him. And then we find a ram stuck in a thicket. So this ram has this crown of thorns on his head, picturing Yeshua. I mean, there's just so much. I get excited. <laughs> there's so much in there. Uh, Dana Troutman says, Romans 2.14, Hebrew Roots Bible 2012, for when pagans not having the Torah do by nature the things contained in the Torah, they, not having the Torah, are a law to themselves. Okay. Yeah, that's a pretty good translation. That's the Hebrew Roots Bible 2012. So there are good translations out there. And this is the whole thing, people are using multiple translations when you're reading, when you're studying your Bible, especially if you read something, you go, I, I don't get that. Look at another translation. Um, it might make more sense. It might come a little clearer to you. Anybody else? We done? There's several books out on the idea of the Zodiac and the Gospel being written in the stars that go into great length on the different signs of the Zodiac and how they go through the Gospel in them. It's, it's really... It's really fascinating. Of course, some people poo-poo that. And, oh, I don't believe... Well, that's okay, you know. Uh, well, I don't believe the same thing about everything. So, what are we going to do? So, commas in the Bible can really throw you... Yes, commas in the Bible can throw you off, okay? Because they're not there. They're not there in the Greek. So, someone... And not there in the Hebrew. So, someone comes along and says, let's pause here. And then, the, you know, and you're like, yeah, we use commas in English. They're important, okay? Because they tell us. You can change the whole old meaning of a sentence by putting a comma somewhere, okay? <laughs> and you can got some funny examples of that. But in the Hebrew and the Greek, when you put them in the wrong place, again, they try, they're trying to be helpful. But everybody who translates the Scripture, everybody who does anything with the Scripture, has a prejudice. They have preconceived ideas. They have a theological viewpoint. And they usually will stick to that. Because, you know, they think what they believe is right. So that you got a bias in there. When men touch it, there's a bias in there. So you compare with several different men, especially if they got different theologies, and you get, a, get to look at the whole picture maybe and what something else says. All right, let's get the group, the band back down here, the singers back down here. And let's close by singing, Who Am I? I'm not confused, but, you know, I know who I am. But just in case you don't understand... All right, Dana, Dana Troutman again asks, so what you're saying is that the gospel in the stars is only taught to us through spiritual discernment, revelation, or having some instinct. And I think to us, I, I think it was taught to the antediluvians. I think they had to have an education. Again, the watchers taught them. I think Adam and Noah had knowledge of this, and they're teaching there's something in those stars. This is not anything we're going to pick up on our, with, without divine aid. It's just, you know, again... Uh, you, you see those pictures, I see them, and I'm like, I let them look like a lion to me, you know. But we have to understand when they're taught, it makes sense. All right, let's stand together and sing, Who Am I?